All right. <clears throat> if you have an Acts 11 outline, uh, do turn that in. So either like pass them up to Kelvy or something like that. That's uh, the whole purpose of having signal, right? <laughs> for what? So you know there's an assignment. That's right, that's right, that's right. We were doing Acts 11 uh, scripture outline. So we're going to keep referring to this uh, because I think it's really important. It's the bedrock. Um, were you here last week, Joe? I was here, but I didn't catch the assignment. Okay, don't worry about it. Yeah, that, I put it out in the... In the I'm going to try to be better about putting uh, the assignments out in the... Um, in the uh, in this before we close class going forward from here. All right, thank you, sir. I'll I'll take a look at these and not uh, and mark them up and give them back to you next week and try to help you uh, get better. Oh, whatever. Let's see how bad this is. Come on, man. My my chicken scratches. Oh, that's that's way better than mine. Yeah, that's excellent. Uh, put a name on it. There. Or you don't get credit for it if you don't have your name on it. All right. Yes. Of course. Yeah, of course. No problem. No problem. Um, so I wanted to spend a little bit of time discussing knowing God and some of your insights and things that you may have learned from reading uh, Knowing God. So I thought what I'd do is take a couple, two or three people that had something that they wanted to say about knowing God and hear what, you, hear what you've got to say tonight. Uh, anybody... Anybody had any insight that they wanted to share tonight? Hey, Josh. Hey. Rick. <clears throat> um, nothing major, but I just I loved in the book the way whenever he talked about an attribute or something about God, he just bombarded with all the optical scriptures right there. Yep. And it was so good. It gave you kind of like an overwhelming understanding of what he was trying to say. And then he break it down and explain it. So uh, I'm I'm enjoying the book. It's he's a very clear writer, and exactly like you said, it's extremely scriptural. It's not just um, his ideas on things. It's it's a, a true explanation of of different aspects of the character of God. Anybody else? Yes, Sam. Wasn't that the chapter where he actually said, he challenged you whether you read the news more than you read the scriptures? There was something in there where he, I was like, well, that's been a common thing. This is like the 50th anniversary of this book. People were reading the news more than the scriptures back then, too. It's only gotten worse, I think, in our day and age. But that really, that really impacted me. 
Yeah, absolutely, Sam. Uh, Kelby, do you have something you want to say? Yeah. Um, there's two kind of things that stuck out. The first was it's on page 20 where he talks about the, the Trinity and the Trinitarian work of salvation. That mm. I just love the imagery of that and just the just how salvation works and how God gives it, but it's each unique person of the Trinity having a role in it yeah. and how beautiful it is. And then, if you were paying attention, that worked its way into the sermon yeah. two weeks ago. Yeah. So reading affects you because you read and you're like, wait, that has exactly to do with what I'm preaching here today. So I think I need to talk something about this. So yes, a, a, a version of that came into the sermon a couple weeks ago. Yeah, and then there's another, I just wrote a little thing. It's on page 26. It talks about <coughs> one can know a great deal about God without much knowledge of him. Mm-hmm. And I was listening to another, it's actually Thomas Schreiner um, mm-hmm. clip. He was being interviewed. He talked about theological hobby horse of how we can get on this one little topic and just, it's our hobby. Yeah. And we're actually not doing anything with it. Yeah. And it's a, just a good challenge for all of us as we're studying and knowing more about God, but letting it be practical too. Yep, absolutely. Somebody else. Yeah, I think that's what oh, go ahead. Yeah. The, the chapter is going from the love of God to the grace of God to the justice of God mm-hmm. to the wrath of God to the goodness and severity mm-hmm. of God. It was just it right such a culmination of God's character. And I think it was like uh, it like climaxed in the grace of God, mm. understanding like what God has saved us from. Yeah. And his grace is according to his character and his love and his disposition towards mm-hmm. us and how it's so moving and so life-changing. And he talked about how that's what fueled the missionary enterprises. It was their understanding mm-hmm. yeah. of God's grace for them. It wasn't yeah. because they wanted to accomplish some purpose or some thing. It was because they were so captivated by his grace. Absolutely. Uh, that was moving. It is. And he has some surprising insights. I think it's in that chapter on grace where he talks about one of the supreme attributes of God being his generosity. And you're like, well, that's interesting. But generosity is giving, that's a, that's a word that we definitely understand in our day and age. It's something that you don't, it's way beyond anything that you deserve. But God is generous, and that's part of grace. It's just, man, abundantly over and beyond anything that we deserve. And uh, that's just, anyway, something just reminded me of that statement because I had never heard anybody say that. But I very much agree with it, and it ties into grace in an interesting and unusual way. But, yeah, thank you. Anyone else? Right, Joe, you had something? I was going to add a little bit to what Kelly said. Because one, of, one of the things that he does is he blows your mind with just mm-hmm. a few words. He is times. amazing in his articulation of things. Right off the bat with me, so you know Doug Adams. Mm-hmm. I, heard him, I heard him preach on, uh, in the beginning, God, and then he just blew your mind. Right, just in the, four words, and then he blows your mind on that's the, the bigness of that of yes. that statement, right? Knowing about God and knowing God, and as soon as I read, it was like boom! I was, oh my goodness! I think I have known a lot about God. Have I really dove in and known Him? Hmm. And I actually cried when I read it. Yeah, so. Many, many years of my life were about knowing things about God. And it just goes very much into the relational nature of God is a person to be known personally, not a subject to be learned about. And we have to pass into this. 
And then we pass into that, into that, into for, to the grace in enjoying the love and the kindness and the mercy of God towards us as sinners. And that's where the, the joy and uh, you know, the whole idea of the chief end of man is to glorify God and then to enjoy Him forever. And so doing, living for God, knowing God, believing in Him, and then living for Him, and laboring for Him, whoever said doing things, working these things out, laboring for God should lead to joy because God's work done in God's way leads to joy. And if that's not where your Christian life has been leading you, then something's dramatically wrong uh, because either you've missed God as a person or you misunderstand who He is in salvation or the way that you're seeking to serve Him is somehow off in a fundamental way if it's not leading to joy. But, Jim, you had something you had to say. I was going to say the same about chapter 3. So far has been the one that struck me the most. And just kind of echoing, it's, it's titled in my book at least, Knowing and Being Known. And he, he talks just about that, knowing about God versus knowing God. And he uses the term that this idea of knowing God is a personal dealing. We have to deal with this. Mm as personally being involved in what we know and learn. So I thought the outline of the chapter was excellent as a way of presenting Christ to a seeker or an Hmm. unbeliever. He says at the end of that chapter that what matters supremely, therefore, is not in the last analysis the fact that I know God, but the larger fact which underlies underlies it, the fact that he knows me. And so often I think people who are not believers are reluctant to share the worst about themselves, but the reality of it is God already knows all of that. <laughs> I think there's a freedom in yes. confessing our sins to a God who knows us already. So it struck me as being a great way to um, kind of identify where someone is and then help move them along the path. Excellent. Anybody else on knowing God? Yes, there. So the biggest thing that stuck out to me even though I've read further than this, I cannot get out of my brain is um, in chapter two, when it says those who know God show great boldness for God, mm. right? And he says, but these, things, but these things did not move them. Once they were convinced that their stand was right and that, th- that loyalty to their God required them to take it, then in Oswald Chambers' phrase, they smilingly washed their hands mm. of the consequences. <laughs> and many in America don't understand the length at which people are faithful to Christ because we don't face persecution here. That is why I want you to read Christian biographies. It's for this exact point to be just driven home in your soul. Yeah, that that point sort of wrecked me a little bit because I've seen some of that. Mm. And it's like, how often do people pick up their device and like my wife says, doom scroll, right? When you, but when you have access <laughs> oh, I'm to, saving that one. Right? Doom like scroll. On yeah. every device, uh-huh. you have access to devotionals on every device. But because we are not like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, we're, we're, we're ne- we never face the furnace here, hmm. right? And they did smilingly wash their hands of the consequences because they knew that God would bring them out of it. Without a shadow of a doubt in their mind, they knew that God would be faithful to them for their faithfulness to Him. Yeah. So that 
brings back that point of there's a difference of, about knowing about God, yeah. but knowing God and knowing that he can't be anything but faithful to those who are faithful to him. Yeah. He never changes. We're the, you know, the wayward up ones. and down and yeah. you know, everything else. So I have not been able to get that out of my head. So. It's very good. Anyone else? All right, I'm going to read one thing. So just a reminder of last week we were talking about uh, self-indexing a book. So if you didn't see that, like this is very helpful to me. Uh, so I'm just going to go to the one. I thought the, the section on wisdom was really fascinating. Wisdom has been something that I've prayed for a lot in my life um, and asked for so often in trying to lead well. And I think it's something that you should pray for as well. So page 115. Uh, he talked about some of the principles of wisdom, God's readiness to give wisdom to all who desire the gift and will take the steps necessary to obtain it. That's interesting. So you're praying for the gift of wisdom and then take the steps necessary to obtain it. So I thought it was awesome. Number one, he said the first thing in obtaining wisdom is we must learn to reverence God. Uh, and back to what Rick was saying, a bunch of verses about the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Not a, not a, a one-off concept in the Scriptures. It's everywhere. If you want to be wise, the first thing you had better do is reverence God. Number two, we must learn to receive God's Word. So you know, a little bit from the Sermon this Sunday, receiving the Scriptures implanted in your heart. If you want to be wise, you had better reverence God and then be very open to His Word. So we've, we're talking constantly about the Scriptures and the, the partaking of Scriptures. This is why we talked about devotions in reading the Scriptures prayerfully each day as we ask for wisdom and then stand before the Lord and want to receive His Word. He will make us wise. Oh, and this is actually it. This is the one. Do you spend as much time with the Bible each day as you do with the newspaper? I didn't realize that. Actually. That's... That's, I need to read that one because I like the newspaper, but I need to make sure that that is not um, imbalancing my time. So anyway, I just thought that was excellent, and I'm sure that will appear somewhere later uh, because that's, a, that's really good stuff. But. Yeah. I'm just digital news. You know, I've got, I've, I've got the Wall Street Journal on my phone, and, I, you know, it's... it's yeah, you can just spend too much time there. It's way too much time. It's too, too, accessible, too accessible in some ways. Well, so just reemphasizing assignments. Um, we're going to read one more week in this, and then wherever you are, just stick, a, stick a, a marker in there, and then I'd like you to transition to biographies. And you can come back to this later. But I'm asking you uh, this week to write some type of review related to one section of this book. This book has three sections to it. Um, rather than write a review on this whole book, it's just too big, but the sections are Know the Lord, Behold Your God, and If God Be For Us. And so what you're doing is, is making a statement. Now, your audience, as we're going to see tonight, remembering in public speaking and writing, who is your audience? Your audience is the newsletter of this church. So you're writing to the people of this church that have never read Knowing God. And you want them to say, "Hey, this this is this was what I this was my take on this book." And one of the sections of this book has to do with this. And in that section, I learned this, or it impacted my heart in this way. And um, 
it was valuable to me in this way or whatever. Or if you want to critique it in some way, like, oh, this could have been better. But if you recommend someone to read this book at the end, say, hey, I encourage you to get a copy of this book. There's multiple copies in the library and read it. One of you guys, I'm going to take it and I'm going to put it in the newsletter. And so hopefully someone that's reading the newspaper too much or just whatever, reading garbage or not reading at all and wants to know who God is, will pick up a book and learn more about who God is. And so um, if you would do that, and maybe my, my newsletter articles are usually somewhere between a page and two pages, single space, 12-point font, and Word. So that's uh, if you go beyond two pages, it's, people aren't going to read it. So uh, it's, just keep it somewhere uh, under, under two pages. But I'd like for you to r- write that. The practice of we've, going back to what we said the first week, the first level of being able to express yourself and having understanding is verbalizing it. So we verbalize some things that we um, thought were important. The next stage of, of refining your thought there is to actually write it down. It gets a lot more particular in making sure that you've actually understood what you're looking at and uh, have thought through it in a very clear way. Uh, on that, how are we sharing those with you? <clears throat> um, you can either print it out and give it to me, or you can email it. So there is a there is a group. My email, if you guys don't have it, is Victor V I C T O R at RedeemerVA.org. Victor at RedeemerVA.org. So you can either email it or bring it in, whichever one you want, Mark. All right. Okay, I'd like to go to the other homework assignment, which was. Greet or visit someone. I would like to hear a couple of encounters of people that you either greeted or visited this past week. Did yours happen? Yep. All right, I want to hear yours. So one of my crew members, I work for a landscaping company. One of our crew members uh, a while back had to go to the hospital. He wasn't feeling good, so on and so forth. Didn't know anything was wrong. He was diagnosed with leukemia. Um, Had no idea about it, this thing growing inside of him. Um, he's on chemo now. He, he actually just finished like a big round and it's pretty much wiped out. He's on like chemo pills now. So he's kind of coming down off of that. Um, <clears throat> I visited him. I had the, the privilege of visiting him on Friday. We, our crew and our team wrote some cards for him and they were going to mail it to him. And I was like, we're not doing that. <laughs> so I took it upon myself and drove down to VCU and um, just spent some time with him. Found out that he was a believer. So praise God for that. Okay. And um just had some fellowship conversation, talked about work, talked about his church family and stuff like that. And okay. It was just good company. You could tell that he really just needed somebody. You know, the only person that was visiting was his sister okay. about every other week. And he'd be in the hospital for two, three weeks. Okay. So, yeah. Hospital visit. Great. We talked about hospital visits last week and fantastic. That's super awkward. Is this your first hospital visit? Yep. All right. Well, aside from like family, but yeah, but a, a person that's not family visiting in the hospital. So was it was it when you came out the door on the other side? What was your sense, or what did you feel like? I felt relief because okay. I didn't know where he was at in like in salvation and where he was at with like a body of like believers okay. or something like that. And I just felt I felt really relieved. Um, yeah. He actually had a surgery for biopsying something on his lung today, so I've been in prayer for that as well. There you go. Else to pray for that as well. Remind me at the end. We'll sure. pray for him. Yeah, I'll check in with him tomorrow and have some updates. But there's few more vulnerable places to talk with someone about their soul than when they are very sick in the hospital or in prison. And so that's why the 
Bible talks about us visiting the sick and visiting those that are in prison because it's a vulnerable time and an opportunity to speak with them about their soul. Um, it can be difficult. Others from this week, visits or greeting a visit, a vi- greeting a person sitting by themselves or any other stories from this week? Rick. Yeah, I met uh, when after we did the uh, new member, yeah. I saw an elderly couple right, right in the middle and after the service, like I didn't see anybody speak with them, so I went up and spoke to them. Nice. Warren and Sandy. Yeah. A uh, very nice couple. She's caring for a 95-year-old father in her home. Yes. You know, very nice couple, and we just chatted for about five or ten minutes. That's great. So they came into membership this past Sunday, and that's such a great story, just briefly, and then we'll keep going. Uh, there was a time when the first time came up said, hey, how are you guys? It was some months back. And uh, he, uh, he was kind of, she was not here, it was just him. And he was very brusque. And I was like, well, that was a good sermon. I enjoyed your sermon, but you got all week to prepare this stuff. Like, if I had all week, I could probably come up with something good, too. And uh, I said, pastors don't really work. And uh, I was like, well, actually, I do have a job. I work full time. And, uh, and he was like, that can't be. And uh, he, was, he was completely, it was, divi- it was a divine appointment for his, this conversation to come up with this guy. He was completely floored, and he was speechless. And he just like walked off. He didn't know what to say. And so he came back the next week and apologized and said, I've never heard of anything like that. And then he brought his wife back and here we are months later. And it's just, the guy's just full of joy. Every week he's just smiling. And then they've reoriented their lives to be able to come to church. They haven't gone to church in many, many years. And so it's just very, very encouraging. So thank you for continuing to uh, just show the love of Christ through the church. it's important. You don't know what people's stories are. You have no idea what a person is going to say to you when you go up and shake their hand and greet them. Anybody else welcome a visitor this past week or visit somebody else? Jacob. Yeah, so actually two weeks ago, um, I was on baby duty because Sarah was fussing. And uh, I went back in the nursery and I sat down next to this guy. His name is Ken. Yeah. And we started talking a little bit. And the conversation, it was we just weren't able to really hit it off back then. Yeah. I introduced it myself to him and we just talked about our kids and yeah, um, we good. were sitting next to each other this past week and we both ended up going back again <laughs> and uh, I made it a point to talk to him and get his phone number yeah. his phone number, and uh, he actually lives five minutes from, from us. And Isn't that crazy? Uh, Rick, can you grab that door? Um, my wife met his wife. and we had a That's fantastic. Yay. He has a daughter. It's close to Welcome, Andrew. Come on in, brother. That's great. That's great. They they just started coming. I think he said they started coming back to Redeemer about a month ago. Okay. Okay. Perfect. That's what we're looking for. That's great. That's great. Okay. Let's get into our coursework for the night. Where are we at? All right. Uh, Okay. So I want to continue. I want to remind you that this is cumulative. So I want to continue to urge you towards personal devotions, urge you towards greeting those that are alone in the church, visiting with people that the opportunity presents itself to you, and that the opportunities that the Lord puts right in front of us are the opportunities that we should definitely not miss. 
opportunity. We can often pray for opportunities and there's things that we're literally tripping over right in front of us and we're, we're not interested in those because usually those are hard or uh, are going to require some sacrifice or are going to be uncomfortable or whatever it may be. Let's be sensitive to God's spirit as he brings people directly into our path that we might encounter them for Christ. What we're going to talk about tonight is uh, issues related to public speaking and effectively leading a Bible-based small group. So first, let's talk about issues related to public speaking. If you are going to serve the Lord, you are going to have to speak in some way. It's just a part of bearing witness to who Jesus is that you're going to speak to people about it. And so you're going to have to have the courage to do that. And then depending on who you are or what God's called you to, you may step up into various roles to to do more and more in speaking about who Christ is and speaking about his word and whatever it may be. But I want to give you some basic uh, considerations in public speaking because some people are, are, they've never heard these things and they don't know where to start and it's terrifying to them because it's totally unknown. And so it doesn't need to be this way. Let's start with preparation. So preparation for public speaking. The first aspect of preparation for public speaking is to consider your audience. Consider your audience and how to connect with them. So somebody will have asked you to say something or you have the opportunity to say something to a group of people. You must consider the audience. If it is a group of junior high kids versus a group of senior citizens versus a group of college students uh, versus you're overseas and you're speaking with like English as a second language group of people, whatever it may be, you've got to consider the audience because that's going to relate to how you present the message. And you can be presenting material that is good and completely not connect with the audience because of the way that you present the material. So you're striving to take your message and connect it with the audience because that's what communication is taking what's in your heart and effectively communicating it to the audience that there's before you. Secondly, in preparation, you should consider your time, the amount of time that you have to present whatever it is. If you're asked to share a a little devotional before an upward basketball game, you're going to have 10 minutes, 5 minutes. If you're asked to you know, uh, come, come visit somebody in the, ho- come visit my brother in the hospital and talk to him about Jesus. You know, you're going to have a certain amount of time. If someone says, I want you to come speak at a men's event, you've got 45 minutes to an hour. Somebody says, I don't care, speak as long as you want to. I get, w- w- it, there's going to be a time, somehow or another, time is going to be involved. And if what you decide to present is either radically too short or normally too long, the, the, the normal error that new public speakers make is presenting too much and going too long. And so they we're going to get to that later. But consider the amount of time given to you to present what you're supposed to be presenting. Now, the more you speak, the more your preparation is going to relate to writing out notes. Okay, We've all researched something and written notes down. You're going to develop a system of notes because you're going to need to refer to something in order to present whatever you're saying. So coming up with notes. You're considering your audience, your time, your notes. The notes can come in many different ways, but do not wing it. Okay, Winging it is not good. 
Uh, winging it ends up getting you into trouble, saying dumb things, wrong things, inappropriate things. I mean, we have all been in an audience where somebody starts winging it and says something really inappropriate or awkward, and you're just like, oh, why, why did he say that or she say that? And they did not have notes, and they were just going for it. Don't do that. All right, second aspect of public speaking related to public speaking is simple, clear communication. Simple, clear communication. I encourage you, when considering your audience, to think about the, the most simple or the most difficult to communicate person with in that audience and try to communicate to them. So if you know there are children in the audience, your message should be of such clarity that the child can understand some significant part of what you're saying. I am the most encouraged when elementary school age children come up to me and say, thank you, Pastor Vic, that was a, that was a really meaningful message. And they're like, this tall. And that's really, that's really important. And it happens often, and I praise God for that, and I think about them. I also, in considering your audience in simple communication, I often like visualize a certain person in the audience. There are often people that I think are going to be in that audience, someone that is either definitely an unbeliever or somebody who is a hard skeptic or somebody that I know just has an ax to grind with me, but I think they're going to be there that Sunday. I will write their name on the top of my notes and think, how could I possibly communicate this to this person? And it gives me an, an object of trying to have clear, simple communication to that person. Think of your grandmother. How would you say whatever you're going to say to your grandmother? And would she be able to understand what you're saying? Now, this does not mean that every message and every talk that you give is super basic. Um, there are certain things some people will get, some people won't get, but you go from basic to deeper. And so there should be a, a little bit of a, of a range if we get all the way into a sermon. But for sure, you can, the more mastery you have of a subject, the more you are able to simply present very difficult concepts. So aim for simple and clear communication. Sort of the opposite of that is people that like to use unintentionally, uh, unnecessarily use big words and flowery phrases to try to impress people with what they're doing or saying or quoting quotes that no one can understand so that they think you're smart or something. That's the opposite of what I'm aiming at here. All right, uh, third, issues related to public speaking. Use clear diction and appropriate volume. Okay, uh, clear diction means you pronounce your words so that people can understand what you're saying. Uh, all of us can get lazy in our, in our speech and the way that we, we talk. We all have different accents and things like that, and I understand that. That's not what I'm necessarily talking about. But if, if you know that your accent or the way you pronounce certain words is so difficult that a person couldn't understand you, that's a problem. You want part of me saying something to you and you understanding it is me literally speaking it clearly enough that you can understand it. So you got to get your volume up loud enough to where the person in the back can hear you. And you need to speak clearly enough so that that person can understand you. Part of this has to do with speed, how quickly you are talking. 
Some people can go so slow, you just want to fall asleep. And it, it, it can become, you just, uh, you just want to go to sleep. I was the other way. Back in some of my early sermons, and I, I still fight against this, but I had a, a bless your heart moment. I had a, a very awesome Christian man from a rural town come up afterwards and literally put his arm around me and say, son, I want to tell you a story. And like, all right, this is bad. This is good. This is not. But I remember it to this day and it radically helped me. He said, I used to do dirt track racing and I had this car and I would, I would jam the gas all the way to the floor and his tires would spin and spin and I never seemed to win a race. And I finally figured out if I let off the gas some, I'd get better traction and I could get around the track faster. And I started winning. He said, I think if you slow down a little bit, people might understand you more. And I was like, that's genius. I mean, that is genius. And so I still think about that to this day. And so I try not to spin my wheels by speaking too quickly to where people can't understand what I'm saying. Um, Clear diction, appropriate volume, appropriate speed for the purpose of communication so that those who are listening to you can understand what you're saying. I have a good friend that had a such a strong accent that people had a hard time understanding him. And I, I was sort of away from him for years and came back, and it was very different. I was like, how did you... He said, I, I knew people could not understand me, so I started speaking with a different diction so that people could understand me. And he changed himself. You can change yourself. If you know there's a deficiency in the way you communicate where people cannot understand you, you can change. All right, fourth, you need to be aware of distractions. You need to be aware of distractions, things that take away from what you're saying. If you listen, now, and this is, the people are different ways in this. I'll let you do whatever you want to do. Early on, you may want to listen to yourself. I never listen to my own sermons. I never listen to anything that I say, uh, ever. I think it's weird, but... Um, you need to be aware, though, if you're saying like, 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 um, like, uh, er, uh, you know, things that are caught up. Often when people are new in public speaking, as soon as there's a moment of silence, they're terrified of it. Don't be afraid of a moment of silence while you're up or if you can't quite put the next word together. Don't keep dropping something in there that a person's going to notice and say, why does he keep saying like all the time or er all the time? Beware of uh, distractions of ticks and touching your face. I mean, I've seen people, you know, that just, they're constantly like stroking their beard or like putting their hair behind. It's, it's a nervous tick. We all do certain things when we're nervous. And you, you know you do something distracting when you get nervous. Be conscious of that and try to, you know, keep your hands down and don't because it becomes distracting to the communication because people start watching these weird things that you're doing rather than listening to what you're saying. So it takes away from the communication. Other distractions, basic things of if you're going to be up in front of a group of people, go to the bathroom and look at yourself in the mirror before you get up there. 
I'm serious. Like, make sure your fly's up. Make sure you don't have some giant piece of green stuck in your teeth. If you're a lady, you don't have lipstick across your teeth. I mean, I have seen people get up with lipstick all over their teeth giving a public address. It's just radically distracting. Um, make sure your, you know, your collar's not turned up when you get up there and you're the only one that doesn't realize that your collar's turned up and it just, it just is, it's silly. It's unnecessary. So you can go in the restroom, look at yourself in the mirror for five seconds and fix this stuff. And then it's not a distraction to your communication to other people. So I was teaching a training class about 20 years ago when I first started doing that. And I was teaching a class it was some, some you know, boring content, but these two young guys were cracking up and I couldn't understand why. So I didn't want to like stop and distract from the rest of the class. And they're writing something down and then hold it up and it said, your fly is down. <laughs> <laughs> and I That's always great. Yep, yep. It only has to happen once, but it's distracting. They're laughing at that and not had no idea what you're saying. So take two seconds and remove these distractions. One of the wonderful things about um, singing in a church prior to preaching is it does something to warm up your voice. Now this is for a, like if you're going to preach or speak for a longer period of time, you want to make sure that your voice is prepared to do that. So if you have to drink something, or if you've, if you've come right off of eating, and then you're going to go and preach and speak like stuff's gurgling up, and you've got to, it's, these are real things. You do not want to burp in the middle of, of speaking or preaching, but singing like works things out of you so that your voice is prepared. So if you know you're going to speak somewhere, and it's going to be a full address, you want to do something to prepare your voice. Make sure you've drunk something beforehand so you don't get up there and you're super dry, these things come on to you, various, bring me some water, whatever, it happens, but you're trying to prepare yourself. You're trying to take steps to not get up there and then falter in the middle of it because of something that was totally preventable if you had taken a few moments beforehand to prepare yourself. Okay, um, next. Beware of repeating yourself and not landing the plane. Uh, beware of repeating yourself and not landing the plane. This is a combination of a lack of awareness of time and a lack of planning. I think we've all heard people that get up and they start talking and it's as if they've lost their train of thought. So they start repeating themselves again and then they lose their train of thought and then they repeat themselves again. And you think, why is this person repeating themselves? Well, they're unprepared and they don't have notes and they're making it up as they go along. People that cannot end a message in an appropriate way also have not planned. And often it's, they just think, oh, I just got to say this one more thing and it's one more thing. How many of you have been in a public speaking occasion or in a sermon where if the person had stopped talking about 10 minutes prior to when they actually did, it would have been a great message. But since they cannot stop talking, it just ruins the whole situation. And you just think, wow, like land the plane. So when you're preparing your message or your talk and you're looking at your awareness of time, do not skip over the ending. Often like we're, we're, we're pressed on our preparation time and we skimp on the end. 
your ending matters when you're trying to bring it to a conclusion and help people draw conclusions, especially in preaching, impressing them to remember what you were saying or press them to action. The conclusion really matters. And so have a good, strong conclusion where you wrap things up nicely and you end in a way that is memorable and helps people. It's part of the communication. If you go too long, it just sours it, messes it up. Yes, please. Say something on that. Mm-hmm. So I know when I was preparing last year to preach, the biggest thing that helped me was finding an application to close with because that allows you to kind of finish on one point and challenge to leave for the people. Yep. That way you're not, you're, it kind of solves the problem for you yep. in a lot of ways. It does. And you're going to be led to do different things. Like this past Sunday, I ended with what the refrain that I hope people remember. Quick to hear, slow to speak slow to anger. And if we can walk out of here and, and a child can remember that, somebody texted me later that day, son, what did you learn from this? He said, I need to shut up more, dad. <laughs> and uh, that's, that's good. Uh, that's good, son. You, you listen. Andrew. Um, when you say ending, ending to the sermon, is that different than your invitation? Yeah, so usually I will pray and then address the audience seeking a response after I pray. And that can be done in many different ways. I'm just talking about ending in an appropriate time. We're going to talk about small groups next. It can definitely be in that context too. People that go on and on, you're like, the kids are going bonkers. I got to get out of here. Like, I don't want to be rude and just stand up and leave. But they said we're going to be done at 8 o'clock and it's 8.20 and I need to go. And so you need to land the plane. That's mainly what I'm talking about, ending in an appropriate time frame. Anybody else on this? It is crucial. Like all of these matter. And I, when I was growing up, I, my parents put me in Toastmasters. Mm-hmm. And every time you said um or er or anything, they would ding a bell. <laughs> <laughs> Actually. I love it. And be, imagine being 10 or 11 years old up there. And you're nervous as all get out. And they're doing that to you. Well, it actually prepared me because I was an instructor for six years. And all of these things matter. Because you're teaching a bunch of, for me in my instance, a bunch of junior enlisted soldiers to do very complex technical tasks. So if you cannot get the message across and you spend, we would spend four weeks developing an entire training support package to be able to hand to someone else, and oh, I don't need that. And they throw it down. To start talking. We had rehearsed this for a month. Mm-hmm. Like, this is exactly what you need. So it does matter more than anyone ever thinks. You can never wing it. The last thing is prepare for your setting. Prepare for your setting. I say this because I've messed this up in every possible way. So when we got out here preaching during the pandemic, first day, oh, there's wind blowing. And I'm sitting here holding on to all the pages of my book. And I I can't, if I lift this hand up, it goes, you know, and then that's it. Like, oh man, I'm like, yeah, pulling the pages apart. And next I had to go and buy these like magnetic things that would hold the pages down. But then the next week it starts raining. And so when the rain hits it and like it messes up your Bible. And so then we got an awning and then, um, I decided, oh, you know, I'm going to go electronic and stop using this paper stuff and be cool. I took this thing out here for a wedding, and then the sun is shining so bright. Dearly beloved, I looked down to a black screen. I'm like, oh, my goodness. And I kept turning it and turning it until I finally got, like, just the right angle to where I could actually see the screen. It was 
horrifying. Uh, that sun, heat, darkness have had the opposite, all right? I'm going back to paper because that just was a disaster. And I go out and, it's, and it's, it's a men's thing and there's no light. And I look down, I also can't see. I'm like, somebody give me a headlamp. And so I'm up here preaching, you know, with the headlamp shining on this thing, which is okay. But try to prepare for the circumstances that you're going to be speaking in because all of this stuff can just radically throw you off. You feel like you're so good to go and you get up there and one thing just goes so wrong and it throws you off terribly. All right, so those are some aspects of public speaking, uh, aspects of preparation related to public speaking, some things to think through. They can be broadly applied in various ways. All right, let's take a few minutes, and we'll lop over into, we'll take a break after a few minutes here, but then we'll keep going. Effectively leading a, a Bible-based small group. Effectively leading a Bible-based small group. Bible-based because I'm not talking about the hiking of the month club. I'm talking about a Bible-based small group in a church or college or youth setting or whatever. The first aspect of an effectively led Bible-based small group is the leader, Okay. The, the leader, a driving, qualified, capable leader. The small group will rise or fall based on who's the primary leader. That does not mean that that person does all the talking or is always leading, but every small group I've ever been a part of, if there's not a leader fighting for the existence of that small group, as Kelvy and I just talked about not long ago, it will falter and, and peter out and soon be gone. Somebody's got to have a passion for these group of people to get together and love these people enough to strive to reach for them and bring them together and be qualified, which means they know enough about the Bible to teach sound doctrine. It does not mean you have to have a doctorate or be super eloquent, but you, you must know the scriptures. You can't get up there and just wing it and just say something or keep asking people, what do you think this means? I don't know. What do you think this means? That is not a Bible-based small group. Somebody is teaching in some way so that there is clear truth being presented to the group. And that capable leader is going to hold others accountable. So if someone else is leading and you know they're going to help them prepare, they're going to help coach them into what they're doing, but every small group needs a driving, qualified, capable leader. My prayer is for y'all to be those types of people. Small groups are radically important to getting Christians together in small, meaningful groups, and every small group needs a leader. So that's a major part of what I'm doing here is trying to raise up more leaders in this setting. Almost every person I know that's ever gone on to speak at a larger platform started teaching small groups and leading small groups. It's your training wheels of how to go to a, a larger platform. All right, second, to effectively lead a Bible-based small group, you need a place that works related to the audience and purpose, a place. Where are you meeting? This can take on a lot of different things, but you need as the leader to try to keep working on the setting and the place until it's conducive to meeting. This may be a person's house, it may be something in the workplace, it may be at a coffee shop or a bakery, it may be outside at a park, I don't know where it is. But somehow as the leader, looking at your audience and what you're trying to accomplish, does the setting work? 
if the music, well, I had to change one time a workplace Bible study because we were in this Panera Bread where the music was just ripping. Like we couldn't hear, we couldn't pray. And we went to the manager and said, could y'all turn the music down at all for this hour? We're the only people in this restaurant. It's like, no. So, all right, well, we found somewhere else to meet. Um, you work that out. But the setting needs to be as conducive as possible to learning, listening, fostering relationships, all the things that we're trying to do uh, in a small group setting. Third, uh, you have to determine a section of the Bible to study. Uh, small groups can be in various settings, but you're, I, I just, I'm always going to come back to, I think, in the church setting, Bible study should be the name of the game. I just talked to someone tonight about leading a, like a marriage strengthening small group. That's, that's important. It has a place. Uh, but if you look out across the, the broad landscape of a church and most of the groups are all reading various books and not studying the Bible, it's going to be to the detriment of the church. So study, get a section of the Bible to study. You're going to go back to what we just did here as our homework assignment. Every week when you go to teach, you're going to outline the passage. Then you're going to read something about the passage. Then you're going to do something to effectively communicate what you've learned here to the people in the small group so that they can learn something about the Bible. And it'll be transformative to them as it was transformative to you, remembering the most important principle of teaching that you cannot impart what you do not possess. You cannot impart what you do not possess. So if you have not done any study and there's nothing in the well of your soul to pour out to somebody else, it will not be a shocker that your small group is dry and nobody's interested in what's happening there because God has not moved your heart and so you cannot move others. I don't know what the, it's a lot of hours of prep for a little bit of communication, for sure. People do it different ways. Like, I, I tend to read broadly, study broadly, and like continually fill up the well of my soul and then do very specific prep for certain things. But I find that the broad reading of the scriptures and the broad studying of Christian things pulls all kinds of interesting illustrations in they, they can find their way into one particular thing as well. We'll plow through the next couple here, then we'll, then we'll take some time to discuss all these. So this is number four. We've done a driving qualified capable leader. Second, uh, a place that works well. Third, a study, a, a section of the Bible to study. Fourth, uh, Hard start and stop times. Hard start and stop times for Bible study and prayer. Now, that does not mean that all we're doing is Bible study and prayer. But I think I have found, at least in my experience, that having clear start and stop times for the Bible study and for prayer, and then that allows for open conversation time on either end. So people can come early and hang out. People can stay late and hang out. But people that need to come and go for whatever reason know that we're going to start Bible study at 6.30. Like we try to here start at 6.30 and I'm going to try every week to end at 8 o'clock. If you want to come early and hang out, stay late and hang out, great. But while we're here doing this, this is where we're going to start and stop. Um, that's especially in workplace Bible studies where people have a schedule to keep, you'll just lose the entire audience. If you're starting 40 minutes late and running over time and people have no idea when they show up what is actually going to happen with the time frame, they just will quit coming. So 
do with that as you will, but I, I found that to be important. But this talking about hard start and stop times for study and prayer, we cannot cut out prayer. Prayer in small groups is an absolutely essential part of the spiritual growth process. So what I mean by hard stop, stop times for prayer, if I've got an hour, I'm going to start and have the teaching discussion time go for 30 to 40 minutes at the most. I mean, and so I'll tell somebody at 40 minutes, you, at 30 minutes, raise your hand, tell me it's, we're about time to stop. 40, we stop. And plenty of times, like when I hit 40 minutes, that's it. We're done. I'm like, boop. Cut it off. Everybody go to prayer, to prayer groups, and we'll, we'll split up. Then you've got 15 minutes to share, and then pray together. So it's what happens in small groups when you first start out with praying together, and you say, well, who has a prayer request? It's crickets. Two weeks later, people are asking for prayer requests about other people that they know. And about six months into it, people start finally saying, my marriage is falling apart, and my children are on drugs. And it takes months for people to be able to do that. But if you don't constantly make the time for prayer, it will not happen. You'll end up teaching or talking or people running their mouths. It's, oh, we're out of time for prayer. And that's unfortunate because in small groups, that is a major, major part of the spiritual development of the group and the cohesion of the group together. Anything on that? Longer than six months. Yeah. Okay. It's like a year, a year and a half. I can totally believe that. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Time. time. But it's, it's more than just time. It's time and it's care. Because people, and it's trust, so there's three aspects to it. Mm -hmm. People have to get to know you, which takes time. Yeah. They have to know you care about them, because if they don't know you care about them or don't think that you care about them, they're not going to really talk to you what's going on in their lives. Sure. And if they don't trust you, they think you're just going to turn around and walk away and tell your wife or your friend and be like, can you believe what Kelby's doing? Holy cow, that guy's the worst. Yep. So it's, it's time and it's care and it's trust yeah. and yeah, and longer than six months. That's right. Yeah. All true. All true. All right, let's take a break. We'll come back and talk about some facilitation questions, drawing out shy, embarrassed people, things like that. So let's take a five minute break. Let's get into facilitating discussion. Because a small group setting should not be you just talking. A small group setting should be facilitating discussion. So the key to facilitating discussion is asking open questions. Asking open questions, which is very different than preaching. So this goes to your setting, to your audience, some of the things we've been talking about before. In your preparation, your notes should be full of open questions. What is this setting or context? Who is being written about here? How is this passage relevant to your family? Where did this take place? What are some examples of this doctrine or teaching in the Bible? Do we see this in the Old Testament or the New Testament? Whatever. Open questions. Constantly working through open questions. You will start out a small group, depending on the nature of it. Throw a question out there and everybody stares back at you. That's okay. Let them stare back at you for a little while. And if you're comfortable enough to say, you know, I don't know, uh, Greg, tell me what you think about this. And Greg's like, I don't know. Okay, well, you know, Jacob, tell me what you think about this. Asking people, tell me what you think is fine. Uh, do you disagree? Do you have a question? Say something. And eventually people will say something. And the conversation will get started and they'll see that you're not going to jump on them or I don't know what they think. Maybe they've never been in a setting like this before. 
Ask him questions. One of, the, one of the hardest things about that is not answering your own question when you hit that silence. You got, I mean, we sit here and say, yeah, silence is great, but when you're already nervous, when you're already keyed up, when you're already brand new into this thing, you hate the silence, and you're going to want to answer your own question. So yeah. you got to, and if you got to repeat it, if you got to go pick somebody out, hey, man, Jacob, tell me what you think. Call them by name if you have yep. to, right? Direct it. Overhead and then direct it to somebody if you're not getting Find the friendly face who's willing to, willing to talk to you. That true, the person that's engaged with you right. and is, is watching and listening and not saying anything, that's the drawing out the embarrassed or the quiet person. You may be in a group where half the group talks all the time, the other half of the group never talks. That's when you have to say, you ask your question and you look at someone that is not normally talking. And this has to do with balancing the dynamic of a group. Because you're going to have to draw out the quiet person and you're going to have to shut down the talker. Every small group has got the talker. The person that every time you ask a question, they immediately answer and they give you the full dialogue of what they think about. And that is really important. It will destroy the small group. And so what's going to have to happen is over a couple of two or three weeks, you're going to figure this out. All right, this person just is every time I ask a question, they're going to answer and give me a 10-minute answer. And so I think it's most appropriate to after or before, somewhere not in the, in the group, you take that person aside and say, brother or sister, I love that you're engaged. Uh, I, I appreciate what you're saying, but I'm asking you to say less so that others can say more in the small group. And just be honest. Say, when I ask a question and you answer every time, it does not give anyone else the, you would think someone would have said this to them in the second grade, but somehow they missed it in the second grade and they made it to adulthood and they didn't figure this out. So you're helping them because if they listen to you and learn some self-control and some awareness that, hey, maybe somebody else in this group also has something valuable to say, it will help them. It will help their relationships with other people. It will help them in their spiritual growth. And you're, you're helping them by saying that. Usually uh, that works. Uh, with helping to quiet someone and make room for other people. If you have some, a group of people, two or three eager people that are always answering, sometimes I'll ask a question and say, I'd like for someone who has not spoken yet to say, to answer this question. So I would like someone who has not spoken yet to answer this question. Or let's take a moment to hear from someone else or... Uh, I already said that. So, yeah, let's take a moment to hear from someone else. Something where you are intentionally directing the question to people that have not spoken yet. Um, how about working through the substantially wrong response? You ask a question and a person says, it means this, or this is what it's talking about. And it's completely wrong. What should your answer not be? Oh, oh, yeah, yeah, that's, that's, oh, that's right. That, you can't do that because, remember, a hallmark of being a Christian spiritual leader is you never lie to people and you never tell them something that's wrong. Like, you always want to tell them the truth. And so if a person gives you a substantially wrong answer, and that means, like, it's really wrong, and everybody in the group that knows the Scriptures knows that is totally not right, you cannot let that fly. In a tactful way, you have to say, I understand maybe why you said that, but that is not what the Bible is communicating. Or that may be your opinion, but that does not align with Scripture. Because this is going to go to something we're going to talk about later. 
it's not their opinion versus your opinion. It's what does the scripture say? And so your response to them somehow has to communicate that what they just said does not align with scripture. And so let me tell you what the Bible says with grace. But you're telling them that they're wrong because they don't understand what the Bible says. And that's really important. And they're going to have to humble themselves and understand that their opinion is irrelevant to what the scriptures teach. But we have to figure out how to do it with grace. So we cannot allow wrong responses. And we will get lots of wrong responses if you ask the cardinal sin question for small groups, was, which is, what is your opinion? What does this scripture mean to you? What does this scripture mean to you? That is, it doesn't matter what the scripture means to you. It matters what the scripture means. There is a meaning to that scripture. And it's, it's what the author, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, wrote it to mean. Now, there are many different applications. Depending on where you are, it could be applied in all kinds of different ways. It might have implications, but it has a meaning. And it, it's not an inkblot drawing. The, a, a passage that is words in it in the scriptures cannot mean fundamentally different things to all of us in this room and all of us be right. Because then the Bible just becomes a a method of self-reflection, and that is not what the Bible is. We're here to learn what God has to say to us through the Scriptures, not just to take our own emotions and feelings and reflect them off the Scriptures so that we then affirm ourselves. That's not what Bible study is about. But that's what you're doing if, as a small group leader, you're asking people, what does the Bible mean to you? And they tell you something that's crazy, and you say, oh, yes, yes, that's good, that's good, I like that. Uh, you, we can't do that. Questions about that, Izzy? Um, so I was wondering how you like take that into consideration when you're looking at like different theologians and like their differences and like yes. what the scripture's saying. Like, because there's a lot of smart people who know a lot about the Bible, and like, mm -hmm. I'm not sure like <laughs> how do you like tell which decision is. There's a different. So there's different. That's a great question. So how the, for the recording, how do you deal with lots of different? people that write about the Bible that reach fundamentally different conclusions. Well, they cannot all be right. Let's say that first. So if you have in anything in life, many people will reach many different conclusions, and that does not mean they're all equally valid conclusions. So there are plenty of people that have books published that are wrong in their conclusions about the Bible. So how do you reach that conclusion? Well, you compare what this person is saying to what the scriptures say, and sometimes it is immediately obvious that what they're saying is not accurate. Uh, that usually comes from context. A teacher that has an idea that they want to teach, and they pull one verse out of the Bible, and they say, see, the Bible teaches this. You're like, what? And you go and you read, the, and then you read the whole chapter, and you're like, that is not at all what this is saying. I mean, and it becomes immediately obvious through context that what they're saying is wrong. Um, I would say that this is a very, I mean, I could go on for a long, long time with this. I would say that usually why people are wrong in a broader sense in their interpretation of the scriptures is because they are more committed to upholding a system of thought than to understanding the Bible. They have a system that they want to work out, whatever that system is. And they are going to cram the scriptures into their system. And if it doesn't fit into their system, they're going to intentionally cut those 
verses out. My mom used to call it the cut and paste Bible. So she would be very frustrated when a, when a pastor or teacher would reach some conclusion. And she said, well, yeah, it says that there. But if you looked at 17 other verses and brought these together, that's not what it says on the whole. But you go and you start looking through that theologian's writings and somehow they never, they intentionally skip or overlook things that don't work for their system. So we are always, as Bible teachers, trying to present the scriptures as faithfully as we can, not a system of thought. Now, so that's where biblical theology and systematic theology don't come into conflict with each other, but are different concepts of theology. So I'm going to give you the, a two-second version of that. Systematic theology is trying to take the themes of the Bible and explore them. If you open up a systematic theology, it's going to be a creation, sin, God, man, uh, the, let's see, aspects of salvation, justification, sanctification. It, it's, it is themes in the Scripture, and it's going to pull together. This, this is a version of a systematic theology. It's exploring themes in the Bible and bringing many scriptures to bear. A biblical theology is more like a commentary. It's looking at this one book of the Bible because the Bible is not written as a reference manual. The Bible is not a, I would like to learn about creation. So I open up the creation setting and I read all that God has to say about creation. There's all kinds of verses in the Bible about creation in various different places in the Bible. So biblical theology is just looking at one book and reading it as it stands and say, what can we learn about God in the way that the Bible is presented in its chapter by chapter, verse by verse? So we're always kind of going back and forth between biblical and systematic theology to get the best possible understanding that we can of the scriptures without overemphasizing a system because any system is created by a man. Whether that man is Calvin or whether that man is... Grudem, or whether that man is Arminius, or whoever it may be, some systems are better than others, but none are perfect. No human being can fully encapsulate the mind of God and put it down in nice little boxes so that we can all understand it. It doesn't work that way. That was a long answer to your question, but hopefully that made some sense. Um, a few more things about small groups. Good communication. I find that so much of, of success in small groups is communicate, 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 and then communicate some more, and then maybe people, half the people will understand you. So here, I'm doing the best I can to communicate. We still have people missing assignments and having no idea what books we're reading, and I, I'm, I need to communicate more, but I'm going to keep trying to communicate what it is that we're doing here, and eventually most of you will understand that. But in some settings, that means an email, it means a signal group, it means trying to walk people over the table. I'm trying to communicate as much as possible what we're doing here so that you can grasp it. Use lots of different methods uh, you, in all kinds of different settings. All right. One of the things about small groups, to break or not to break? That is the question. So some people love small group going forever. Like we're always going to meet. It doesn't matter, rain or shine. This one is a semester-based group. This is a group that's going to break. We're going to hit May 13th and we're going to stop because I think this would be too much to digest if we kept going and going. But some other groups, people love being together. And so why break if we love being together? Don't. Keep, keep going. But that's something you need to take into, uh, into account 
related to the energy you have, the audience you have, the setting you have. Sometimes it's just a vote, like let's vote. What are we doing? Are we taking a break? Are we not taking a break? Whatever it is, you want it to be for the health of the group so that it can maintain momentum and keep going over time. Next, welcoming new people and letting others go with grace. Welcoming new people. I think it is a problem when a small group is, just has a hard closure to people. It's one thing to say, we are really full. We just really cannot, we don't know what to do. And that's a struggle. And I understand there can come a time where a group is just closed. But if it is closed, then we're looking for how we can multiply that group and create another opportunity for people to be involved with the same blessing and joy that you have received. And so we never want to be like every dying church in this country where there's 10 people that enjoy each other and they don't care if anybody ever walks through that door again because they enjoy each other. And if that's what your small group has turned into, then that's not healthy because it's not evangelistic and it is not outward focused to bear the word of Christ to others. So something about our small group should always be welcoming new people. Now, there's always gonna be people that say, you know what, this is just not the group for me. That's why we try to have open season with small groups in this church where people can move from one group to another without feeling like, you must hate me if you left this small group. I mean, I've seen people leave churches because they didn't know how to leave a small group without the leader being so offended that they would leave their small group that they just left the church. That's a tragedy. People should maybe just say it. Hey, we've been doing this for six weeks. You know, if this is not the group for you, that is fine. Uh, I want you to find somewhere that you can find a home and make friends and, and love the Lord. And if, it's, if I'm not connecting with you, just tell me and, and go find some. I'll, I'll love you, and, but that's okay. Is it happens. So that, maybe I've never seen that happen, but I... I regularly tell the people in my group, like, you are more than welcome to go somewhere else, and I will not be offended. That's exactly right. And, like, we had a couple leave. Not yep. They weren't missed, but, like, hey, it's time for us to move on. Great. And, and, and I just saw them at church, and the wife gave me a big hug, and we miss you, and, like... That's an extremely practical thing. If someone does go out of your group like that, the next time you see them at church... Do not duck them. Go straight over to them. Give them a hug. Hey, it's great to see you. They need that affirmation that you're not upset with them. That is extremely important. It's the the Walmart test. All right. Uh, The Walmart test, by the way, is if you see a person in Walmart, are you going to duck and go to the other aisle or actually go and see them? Uh, That's an important test. Uh, Last one is what to do with children. What to do with children is a big, tough question. Um... You work through it. Uh, we are trying, in, just so you know, in the coming months here to, to have a, a budgeted money to where we can pay for sitters. Uh, just one of the things that, however you deal with it, one of the things I want to encourage you to take into account is child safety. So we have significant child safety restrictions down here. And uh, just letting teenagers run rampant with small kids for hours in the basement is asking for trouble. That should never happen. It would be better to not have kids there at all or have them all upstairs with you than having unvetted, unknown teenagers for hours with kids in the basement. That's not wise. You're asking for disaster is what you're asking for. Whoever is watching the kids should be vetted in some real way. 
uh, and have some accountability procedures like, hey, we're not allowing kids to lock themselves in closets together and you know, various other things, things that make sense that you say, well, yeah, obviously we should be doing that. Don't assume it. Enact some of those things to make sure that our kids are safe uh, in this day and age. So what to do with children? Think through it. Well, that's it. That's all I've got for the night. Uh, I'd love to take questions that you have, comments, anything like that for the next minutes. How do you, or I guess to say this, <clears throat> what's a good balance between facilitating and teaching? What does that look like practically? So facilitating and teaching should be both. They should not be independent of each other. You are guiding the direction of the, uh, of the presentation. So for me, what that is is teach a little bit, ask a question. Teach a little bit, ask a question. And the more you get into the, the, uh, the small group and people get to know each other, when you ask that question, it'll begin sort of a round-robin discussion. And if I feel like that's gone on for long enough and it's, it's eating up all the time, I'll say, all right, let's, let's go on to the next thing. I, I, I say that all the time. Like, let's, all right, let's go on to the next thing. And it, bloop, just start talking again. Teach a little bit more, then ask a question. A good small group, you should have to do that because people just enjoy interacting, enjoy talking. And you've got a certain, it does not have to be hard. I don't think it should be hard. You've got hard start and stop times, but you should not have a mandatory amount of material you've got to get through. Like, all right, everybody shut up. I, like, I've got to get through this. That should not be what's happening in a small group. You may just reach your stop time. You stop next week. You pick up right where you left off, and maybe you don't have to prepare at all next week because you didn't get through half of what you thought you were going to the week before, and that's totally fine. Does that make sense? Perfect. Okay. Other questions, comments? Just add on to that, using your plane illustration, if you're flying from D.C. to LAX, you know you got to get to LAX, and you're always charting the course to LAX, but when someone brings up something and you're like, oh, Milwaukee would be good for a little while, land the plane in Milwaukee and talk about Milwaukee, knowing that you're ultimately going to LAX. And, and when Milwaukee has run its course, you're steering that plane right back to LAX. Yeah. Because you didn't see Milwaukee coming, but you're like, oh yeah, Milwaukee's really great. And then you, you gotta bring it back to where yeah. you're, you always have to know your end, your end game and your end spot. Yep. But don't loiter in front of LAX so you land at the time you were supposed to. If you're ready to land, go ahead and land. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. right. I mean, if you've made mm -hmm. four out of five points and it took you half the time you thought, don't camp out on five, uh, nope. number five, just to make it last. That's right. Right? Let it. Yeah. Maybe there's some more prayer time that need to be happening yeah. or something, whatever. But if you finish early, you finish early. It's yep. okay. I've never seen that happen. <laughs> <What's that? laughs> Never. And to that point, I think knowing the group is the most yes. important part of that. So, like, you know, maybe it's being a hard week for certain people. So, you cut your lesson short a little bit. So, there is time for prayer. And that this material isn't the main focus that night. Being attuned to crisis situations. If somebody comes in and you ask, how was your week? Well, m you know, my mother died this week and they're just a train wreck. If something has happened, do not be so tone deaf that you miss. You're there to learn, but you are there to love each other in Christ. And so if someone is in a crisis mode, like you need to time out and change the plan and be attuned to that person and 
major. Don't be so driving on the amount of whatever you're covering that you miss those important moments. Um, anybody else? Um, I guess the last thing I'll say about small groups, it just occurred to me, and I think it's very important. God creates all the time, but he, he divine moments. And some of the most special moments in small groups have been when one person shows up. And you're like, man, I'm so bummed. Like, I was hoping 15 people would show up, but one person shows up. What do you do with that one person? We sit down, you have an hour to talk with this person and pray for them. And I've had some seriously life-changing things happen in people's lives where that was, it was God's purpose that that night was the opportunity to talk with just that person about something that they needed to talk about. And it just would not have worked out if everybody else had shown up. So you don't want that to be every night, you know, but there are times when smaller groups will show up and don't be upset by that. Understand that God orchestrates things in certain ways to create certain opportunities because he loves each one of us individually. It is not about numbers. It's about individual souls coming to know Christ. Real quick on that. Um, my wife and I had a small group for years, years ago. <clears throat> but if two or three people would cancel, we would be like, okay, we're just going to cancel tonight because there was only going to be three or four. But then we, we felt convicted about that, so we prayed and said, we're going to do it no matter what. And after we did that, we had one lady show up, and she shared with us that her boss had been sexually molesting her for years, and she would not have shared that if there had been a bunch of people there. It was like such a, it was such a, a God thing yes. that she came that night, and it was just us there for her to open up and share that. So to that, absolutely. Um, don't ever cancel because people cancel. And if one person shows up, it's got it's it's a God ordained moment yep. for you to, to be in that person's life. So, yeah, that I want to follow what Greg just said there in in bringing out more of what he just said there. Do not chase people's schedules. You set the meeting time and agreed upon meeting time for I don't know a semester or whatever, and that is the meeting time. People are so busy. If you try to chase their schedules, you'll never meet. So have the meeting time, and whoever can come, come. They're, it's up to them to reshape their lives for something that's a priority. If that small group is a priority for them, they will reshape their life to get there. But if one person shows up, you meet, and you do whatever. If nobody shows up, you pull out the list and you pray for them all. And it's, it's the meeting time. Um, to a case like that, what do you do as a follow-up for that? Like, I mean, it's obviously illegal, Oh, like, well, so, we, so yeah, we we went through the whole thing. He got fired, and I mean, it was a it was it was a nasty big old thing. So we just kind of empowered her and, and got her in contact with people, the HR. She was empowered to, to talk to them. Um, she didn't go back to work until he was gone. So it was it was huge. Um, she actually. I told her when it, after it happened, we were going through us. I said, "You're going to stand on the stage one day and share your testimony about this." She said, "Never." I guess about <laughs> a year later, she she said she came to me. She said, "I'll share my testimony if you get up there with me." So I stood up beside her and she shared how yeah. God had just used the life group and that time, and it was just it was just a very cool. It was it was definitely growing. Her faith grew for her in that moment too, just because God was just 
evident in her life. Yeah. So, it was, yeah, I mean, it was nasty. The addressing sin, we're going to talk about that next week. Like having hard conversations related to sin is really hard. We're, we're going to talk about that next week. Because I'm just thinking through, like, where's the balance of getting on the phone and calling the police? When's the right timing to do that? If you're doing ministry right, sin's going to start bubbling up to the surface. And you cannot just have a happy face and pat everybody on the back. There, there are difficult things that have to be done to address sin. And uh, so we'll talk some about that next week. Any other closing comment or question about small group ministry? There. One thing. So if you, the hard start and stop times. So you don't know if anyone's going to show up to your small group, but you've scheduled it from 6 to 7. Make sure you're there from 6 to 7. Because you may have someone show up 30 minutes late and they haven't communicated it. So sit True. there and pray. Yep. And then accept them in, and it doesn't matter if they're only there for 30 minutes, but that 30 minutes yep. may be life-changing for you, but it may be life-changing for them. Yeah, so. I agree. I agree. All right. Stuart, you've been quiet back there. Would you mind praying for us and closing us out? Okay. Definitely, Father, I just thank you for this group. I think there's an opportunity to get together in college just to grow in our walk with you understanding of your word, Father, just how to apply it to our lives. I'd like for each person here, Father, just help us to um, work through each week of getting here and, and make it a priority. And um, Father, just um, keeping you first. Father, I pray for Stephen's friend at work. Father, you would just comfort him. Father, help him through this hard time. Um, Father, just uh, put good friends and influences around him. And Father, just that um, you'll see your hand working through this. Father, I thank you again for loving us and blessing us so much. Help us to honor you for what we do inside. Please help me pray. Amen. 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 Let me give you your homework, and then we'll be out of here. Okay, a couple things for homework. I already talked a little bit about knowing God. I want you to write a two-page review of some section in knowing God uh, with an eye towards the newsletter of the church. And... Uh, I want 8-point font, single space. <laughs> My normal is 12-point font, single space. Okay. Yep. Um, so the others are sort of an overview. I, I want you to obtain a biography because we're going to start reading a biography next week. So get your hands on it. Either borrow one from back there, which you are very welcome to do, um, or go buy one. Um, I would like for you to take like from that group. If you have something else, not that I, you get my permission, but I want you to read a good biography, a substantial biography that is warts and all. Like these biographies that make a person out to be this ethereal saint and don't say anything that's sinful about their life. It's not a helpful biography. Okay, um, next. I'm going to press you guys to be doers of the word. We're here not just to learn, but to do. And so I want you to be praying about where God wants you to be serving him in this church. If you are not doing something active in serving this church, um, it is one of our basic things that we have a lot of people involved on the stage. Uh, why we have uh, men, spiritual men, doing the openings and closings is to present spiritual leadership from the home. It's many times guys get up here for the first time and their wife and kids have never seen them get up in front of church and lead a prayer or something like that. It's very influential. And so 
I'm going to take you guys and put you on the opening closing list. So you're going to start getting pinged by Benjamin for opening and closing opportunities. I want it to be unlike it is often where he has to like beat the bush three times to get somebody to say yes. I'd like for there to be a, an eagerness to get up there and say to open or close the service. And we'll give you clear guidelines for that. But otherwise, I, we're going to eventually get into, I'm going to ask some of you to lead the Lord's Supper. If you, there are small group leadership opportunities in youth, children, uh, leading a small group. Like I know Darren's talked about leading it. We need more small groups in this church. If you feel led to start a small group and lead one, Wonderful. We need more small groups in this church. Uh, thank you for what you're doing there, Travis. Um, greeting. Musical. Maybe some of you are musical. It is so that the church is dying for musical worship leaders. So many churches cannot find anyone that is like Benjamin that can get up there and have some spiritual leadership and lead us in musical worship. Maybe that's you. I want you to be praying about that. And lastly, I want you to start adding this one little thing to your routine. Continuing on with our daily devotions, over our whole time being together, I want us to try to work on memorizing Psalm 37. We did this as a church about two years ago, and I'm doing it again because we're entering into politics season. And this whole psalm is about fret not yourself when evildoers do whatever they're going to do, and us being firmly rooted on the Lord. So I don't know how much you've memorized scripture, but just take a little note card, and I don't know how far you're going to get. Maybe it'll take you the whole rest of the semester to memorize four or five verses. That's fine. You will have four or five verses committed to memory, and you can quote these things to yourself. Maybe you'll get through the whole thing, but I'm going to start asking you in our opening session to quote some aspect of Psalm 37 that you may have worked on, and we'll see how far we get uh, because it's important to memorize God's Word. That's all I've got. Thank you so much for being here. I appreciate it.